Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm uh, Nicole Bullock. I run WorkShift, which is Bloomberg's home for all its coverage about work. And I'm here with... Hi, uh, I'm Sophia Song, and I work out of the Gensler Research Institute. And for those of you uh, who aren't familiar, Gensler is the world's largest design and architecture firm. And so I work out of the Research Institute where we study um, the built environment and its connection to human experience and business. And I'm Caroline Quick. I lead global real estate and workplace for Cloudflare. I actually joined Cloudflare in August of 2020, which, as you can imagine, for someone who leads global real estate and workplace, was a really interesting time considering that all of our offices were shut down. At Cloudflare, uh, we are working to make a better internet. We make it faster, safer, and more secure. And you may have never heard of us, but it's highly likely that something that you did on your phone today was run through Cloudflare. We actually uh, have about 20% of the internet traffic runs through us. My intro is not that good. Um, my, my name is Andrew Farah. I'm co-founder and CEO of a company called Density. Um, we build radar systems that count people inside of buildings. So we measure how buildings perform. Um, the systems are anonymous at source, so we don't use cameras or anything else. Um, we don't know gender, age, or ethnicity. But we do know if you're a human um, or if you're a dog. Um, we work with some of the largest companies in the world to measure how large corporate offices are used and other real estate. Um, and I'd say, I remember in March 2020 when the pandemic hit, um, you know, what, is a, what does a people counting company do when everybody goes home? Um, uh, it, it turns out that there's a lot of interest in how buildings are used post-pandemic, um, but it's been a really interesting few years. Okay, great. So um, it's essentially been three years since the global pandemic upended the world of work. And by now, uh, many companies and bosses thought that the idea of working from home or flexible work or hybrid work would be a distant memory. Well, it's not, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Even though people have returned to restaurants and travel, um, the movies, theater, and so on, they still want the flexibility in the workplace that they've had over the past few years. So we're going to talk a lot about some of the latest research that's available on how companies and people are using offices themselves, the office building, commercial real estate, and how all of that is affecting cities around the country. So let's start with that. Um, in 2023, how are people using offices? Okay, so Gensler Research Institute, we started, you know, almost 20 years ago, and um, our largest body of work is workplace research. Um, and since 2008, we, you know, identified all these different modes of working. Um, working alone, working in person, working virtually, uh, learning and professional development, and then social socializing and networking. And so we've been studying how people work. And actually, you know, since the pandemic, you know, it's ch ch actually changing rapidly. Um, in the first, you know, 
you know, when we were first returning to the office, you know, during the pandemic, people were coming to the office to, for all the major like social reasons, right? Like to socialize, to work collaboratively in person together with the colleagues that you've been missing. Um, but now in our latest round of research, people are coming into the office um, primarily to focus on getting their work done. So less about collaboration and much more about focusing on the work that they have to do to be more productive, um, to have access to the, the tech, to have access to um, the resources that their company might offer. So we're seeing that shift um, happen like rather rapidly. Well, I was just gonna say that um, when we, started, we embarked on a pretty huge project early in the pandemic when I first joined Cloudflare to completely re-envision the purpose of space uh, because our teams were working well uh, when we were remote and we wanted to say, okay, what is actually truly missing right now when people are not together? And we focused on three main things, collaboration, mentorship, and serendipity. Those things were very, very hard to mimic when we were not physically together. So we reimagined our spaces to help support those main things. And we did a lot, a lot to get us there. And we're now seeing that people coming together are definitely coming together for those reasons. So we're, we're we might be different than some of the companies in the research report also because we are a tech company, but the, the, need for people coming together for collaboration and that mentor that moment of mentorship is we found really important and one thing that we need to help make sure that the physical space supports and encourages so what are we learning at this point now that we've been in this period of flux for a couple of years um with people you know returning somewhat if if not five days a week what are we learning in terms of design about what works and what doesn't work so the rows and rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of desks, the one-to-one -one desking, n most people don't want to go back to that. Uh, I was at a one of my previous companies where we were hiring so many people every week that we needed to have space for that we were fitting people in between desks. We had the 0.5 desks. Uh, so that type of environment is not something that people are excited to go to. Choice and flexibility are the two main things that we hear time and time again that people are interested in, in finding in their space. The flexibility to go in when it works for you and for your schedule and for your life, and the choice to work in an environment that works for your needs. So if you need to go into focus, there's deep focus space. If you need to go in for your offsite, onsite with your team to really have that that hardcore collaboration, there's space for that. So just making sure that there's a lot of opportunity to support all of those different options and that we're always looking for what we're missing and helping making sure that every square foot supports those needs. Yeah, I, I would definitely um, agree with that. I think right now um, what we found is that choice, having choice, um, is highly correlated to having a great experience in your office. Um, and in terms of finding like what is the most effective, 
we found that, you know, the we found 30% of companies have actually modified um, or redesigned their workspaces um, to accommodate for more like in-person in collaboration, um, for more socializing, et cetera. And so the, the, the workspace effectiveness for those purposes, those work modes, um, has actually gone up, you know, since the pandemic. But what has actually gone down is that working alone, working and, and working um, with others virtually. So those are the two work modes that um, that right, right now present like the greatest like design opportunity um, for us to address. Um, I also think like the, the behaviors change based on whether or not you have critical mass in a building. So as I, I'm sure all of you have gone to an office with like no one in it. Um, it's like the best experience, you know, like you sit there alone in a ghost town at one desk by yourself. And you're like, why am I here? Why did I just commute an hour? Um, one of the things that we see in the data, so essentially we know how people use space and then we sort of correlate that with whether or not assets are working, like the physical space is working. And one of the things that we've noticed is that um, after you hit a certain headcount, a certain critical mass, the behaviors all change. And before you hit that critical mass, the behaviors are different. Um, and the, one of my favorites is that 12, up to 12 person conference rooms, the uh, average peak utilization is uh, 1.46 people. Um, so uh, four person, two person, four person, six person, eight person, 10 person, 12 person conference rooms, 1.46 people. You get to 14 and 16 and all of a sudden it jumps to 2.5. And so um, be the behaviors humans exhibit inside buildings, I mean, humans are extraordinarily weird and I think we've given them so much space to come back to. How we redesign that seems like a really important question to answer. So if we look also, kind of widening it out a little bit, after the design of the office itself, what are we seeing for office buildings and trends around commercial real estate and what all of this, all of these massive changes in the way that people are using the office, how is that, how is that affecting, you know, the larger picture around commercial real estate? So what we've noticed is the, the class A buildings um, are actually doing phenomenally well. They, there's actually a flight to quality, um, and it's the class B, class C properties that are actually struggling. And that's actually where we see also the most opportunity um, to see, to, for developers to, you know, re-engage and re revitalize these business cores. So what constitutes or what are some of the features of a class A building versus, you know, on down the line? So class A building is typically um, highly amenitized. Um, they have, you know, high-end finishes. They're the, the, t the tenants of these buildings, you know, are, they're not scrappy startups. They tend to be, you know, hedge funds or something like that. Um, but it, they, they have high, high level of amenities within the building and they're also located in highly amenitized neighborhoods and districts. We also see the focus on hospitality, 
mm-hmm. big time. So uh, within the buildings also, the facilities team that evolved into the workplace team has now evolved into the concierge team. So it's taking off the friction that you would normally encounter when coming to the office. It starts at home in that commute, and that's a much bigger problem, right? That commute in major cities is really stopping people from coming in. Uh, and then the parking experience, and then when you walk through the door, the the welcoming experience and the amenities that are there on site for you, making it a, a more luxurious experience, you know, is... a uh, is one of those things that really will help it be easier and encourage people to come in as well. So just just out of curiosity, what are some of the top or the coolest amenities these days? I'm sure it's not free lunch anymore. That's probably very, you know, a couple of years ago. I think it's other people. I actually like, um, I, I don't think it has anything to do with like the physical space itself, nor do I think that it has much to do with what's there. Um, I think it has a lot to do with what people make it. There's this great book called... Um, uh, how Buildings Learn by Steve Brand, uh, by Stuart Brand. And um, he talks about the MIT Media Lab in Boston and how it is the worst designed building for collaboration. It's like awful. Like the, the, like the, it's where fun would go to die. And yet, not Chicago. And, and, what, and what instead happened is that it gets reinvented constantly by the people that are in the space and so I, I very much agree with, uh, you know, shifting to hospitality because essentially what you're trying to do is facilitate um, productive collaboration amongst other people. And sometimes those people are in person. Sometimes those people are distributed um, much more these days. But I, I, I really think people come in for other humans. Um, and that seems to be the one that really retains them inside of a building. That is... Hundred percent, I totally agree with that. And fist bump, we could fist bump. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and but the the challenge is is that how do you know when people are going to be there? Because you could make that commute and make the trek and and show up to the office in however many square feet you have and not maybe not know that there's another human there. Again, because a lot of these offices are still the same size, but their uh, occupancy levels are very different. Um, And the traffic patterns are also very different. You can tell us a lot about that. And um, what we did at Cloudflare was we saw this challenge. And, you know, for someone like me, I want to know that the people that I need to interact with are going to be there that day. And so we've been developing a workplace app so that people can uh, state their intention about coming in and saying, like, I'm going to be in next Tuesday and Wednesday and Friday or whatever days I might be there. And those that most closely collaborate with me or those that I work closely with or anyone can see the days I'm going to be in the office and then make more purposeful decisions around when they're going in so that you know that you you are making that commute and taking that effort effort for a really good reason that you'll have more uh, effective interactions on the day that days that you do go in, but also it helps you completely re envision your workday because I've learned that I sit in a lot of meetings every single day. And it's not a good time spent for me if I'm going into the office and sitting in a phone booth on meetings all day. So it really makes you think more actively around what your workday looks like and what your experience in the office will be like. And also know that I'll have 
those moments of serendipity or interaction uh, because I know that my colleagues will be in that day. So what do you, what does everyone think about keeping it very flexible and individual, um, as Caroline says, or what we've seen a lot of companies doing is giving guidance on which days, giving flexibility on certain days, but saying, but we would like everybody in the office on Wednesdays or Tuesdays or whatever. So what, what are the pros and cons of those two approaches? Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, choice, um, you know, again, like, it's, choice. It's a big theme. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely correlated to a much higher level of um, satisfaction and, and experience. But I think that also extends to, you know, any scale that we are. Like, even in public city spaces um, where we have the choice to sit down in a public space, that creates that sense of place, sense of attachment, um, and so it, offering that in the workplace um, also creates that sense of attachment. It, because ultimately, we don't want people to come to the office because of obligation. We want them to come because it's a destination, right? Um, so I have like a strongly held opinion. No, I have a loosely held, strong opinion that's loosely held. Um, and then I have sort of like a, a belief of like the weird experiment that's gonna be happening. So on the um, strong opinion that's loosely held, um, if you, have you ever had like a focus day? You ever like instituted a focus day where like you do a no meetings day or whatever? Coordinating that's very helpful because everybody has a no meetings day on the same day. Um, whereas if you're just like, hey, you have the right to pick a no meetings day on any day of the week, if it's uncoordinated, then you have overlap and then it, the policy doesn't work. And I think it's very similar with uh, being in person. Creating a circumstance um, where uh, you are increasing the likelihood to hit that critical mass has a material impact on like what it feels like to work at Cloudflare, you know, what it feels like to work at a company. Um, and that's very hard to replace with a digital experience. Um, and what seemed to have happened during the pandemic is that humans became units of work. You know, you log into a screen and you put in your time, and it's why you could be units of work times multiple companies. You know, we heard these stories about people collecting salaries from multiple companies at the same time, even though, you know, they were only putting in a handful of hours. The weird experiment, so my strong belief is having uh, specific days is very useful, um, and that it should be on the team and the, the, the company to retain folks when they show up, as opposed to mandating how many hours they stay. Uh, and then the weird experiment that I think is going to run is that you essentially have two camps. The we are in person all the time companies and the we are fully distributed, choose whatever you want at any moment companies. And um, I think that the companies that they're going to compete against one another and there is no way to know which is the right strategy until about four or five years from now when one of those two things bears out as more productive or less productive. Um, I strongly believe there's room for something in the middle that is a balance between those things, but um, it, it's hard in cultures that have a really strong in-person culture to, to migrate to a more flexible approach and vice versa. So we've heard um, the word productive or productivity a few times, and that's really been uh, you know, a buzzword of this period because there's a lot of debate as to whether people are more or less productive at the office or at home. So I'd be curious, 
Um, any thoughts on how we should be measuring productivity in 2023? I strongly believe that you should focus on the end goal, right? You need to, everyone needs to get better at setting goals and KPIs and ways to measure that because people are very productive in their own way, in different ways at different times. My daughter, she's 13, so you can, or she's 14, I'm sorry. You can imagine I'm deep in the teen girl world right now. And she is a night owl. She studies best late at night. And I'm like, you've got to get sleep. And she's like, but mom, I'm studying. I'm like, you should have studied earlier, but mom, I study best then. And then she comes home with an A and I'm like, fine, <laughs> no complaints. But we, you know, this world of flexibility is allowing for people like that, that thrive at night or thrive in the morning or have kids, whatever, to, to do their best work when they need to do their best work. So focusing on that instead of how many keystrokes are you putting in a day? How many calendar invites do you have with cross collaboration teams and that kind of stuff? Like we need to focus on the goal. And I think that's a really important theme for this year for a lot of people and companies. I think reten retention is also a really great proxy for productivity. I agree with the goal, like what is the company trying to do? What's the team trying to do? Um, presuming you have good talent and presuming you want to retain some of that talent, if your retention numbers, voluntary retention numbers are high, presumably you will succeed as a company. And so everything should be in service of retaining top talent, whether it's flexibility or it's an office or it's amenities or it's other folks that you hire or, or whatever. Um, and I think it's a, it's a better proxy. Like we are wandering very close to a surveillance state inside some companies. Um, and the keystroke logging is a great, I mean, the pandemic gave us a phenomenal excuse to start monitoring everything that you do. Um, and taken too far, it will spill out into some really bad and unfortunate consequences. Um, on the other side, if you trust folks and you treat them like adults, you're much more likely to retain them, which should result in better numbers or better outcomes with goals and KPIs. So let's get back a little bit to the buildings themselves. So what's the playbook if you don't have the gold standard building? You know, how do you how do you approach that? What do you need to do? What's the thinking around that if if you isolate that your building is part of your problem? So I think the challenge for, for these developers right now is, you know, if people are giving up, you know, companies are giving up leases, you know, there I I think there'll be a trend towards more flexible leases. Um, the other side of the argument is, you know, using these empty spaces for, you know, other uses, either, you know, maker studios or innovation labs or even housing. Um, and so the, there's a very hot topic right now, which is, you know, reusing, readapting um, these buildings that sit empty um, to help with the housing crisis um, that our country is dealing with right now. Um, and so, Gensler, what we've done was we've actually developed this tool. It's like a database tool. Um, and we've, we're using algorithms to really identify very quickly um, those buildings that, um, that the, those commercial buildings that would actually be viable 
to be, you know, transformed into a residential building because not all of these buildings are going to be good candidates. And that's primarily because of the way office buildings are designed. I mean, if you think of the office building that you work in, you know, that, you know, all the, 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 the rooms that are, you know, have windows, they're either conference rooms or offices, but then, you know, where is your access for water, you know, your kitchens, your bathrooms, et cetera. And so in a residential building, <clears throat> in a residential building, you need, every unit needs water, right? And so how, are, so looking at those floor plates, looking at the design, the cores of those buildings and figuring out, which of these buildings are actually going to be suitable to live in? Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, we started to see this in New York City, actually, um, years ago with the financial district converting office buildings to residential use. And what, what ended up happening was you had a lot of apartments with enormous home offices because they couldn't be deemed bedrooms, right? If you want, if it, if it needs... If you want to call it a bedroom, it needs a window, it needs an egress, um, and a lot of these office buildings couldn't provide that. So you ended up with a lot of apartments with huge, huge home offices. Um, so what might change, hopefully, is sort of a loosening of, of zoning regulations um, that could allow for more um, housing options in the future. And uh, from a different perspective, if you are, if you have a company who wants, who doesn't have, maybe your building isn't great and maybe you are not able to renovate it, really focusing on the experience within it, right? Like Andrew was saying, the people inside it are, are the things that are the biggest amenity and really focusing on creating events um, and opportunities for teams to come together more socially and just giving them the platform for that because you can be in any room without a window as long as the people are there and providing the energy. Just taking the time to create that experience or the opportunity for people to come together is, is a big deal. And what about areas where you don't have buildings, right? Where we have uh, centers of gravity of our employee bases that where we don't, we haven't invested in real estate or maybe don't have an actual dedicated workspace. So what we've done is we've created a, uh, and strengthened our site lead program where wherever we have these centers of gravity, we have someone whose purpose beyond their regular job at the company is to focus on bringing people together culturally for these events and opportunities to gather on a social scale. And that is so important because it, it helps increase and spread your culture, right, when you don't even have the physical environment to do it in. I think there's, um, it also depends on like the, I totally agree. I also think it depends on like the um, uh, perspective that you look at it from. So one of the simplest things that you can do if you are an occupant is shrink the amount of available space for the folks that are coming in. I'm sure you've experienced this. Like if you turn off a floor, it's called hibernation by some companies. It's, you know, you're not quite rolling off a lease, but you're turning off uh, a certain set of amenities or access, and all of a sudden you see more folks show up on what remains, and then they feel a sense of camaraderie as opposed to feeling this sense of like ghost town. Um, it also helps with operating costs. I, I think um, there's something that we, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the experience and how do we invest in culture and, and retention, 
But there's another side of this, which is workplace as a concept uh, is starting to become financial. Um, being able to speak to a, a finance team or a CFO about the performance of a building, and I'm not saying this as a, I'm deeply biased because I work in the performance of buildings, but setting that aside completely, it, it, we in the last five years, especially in the last 12, but especially, but, but in particular the last five years, have not had any reason to say, well, this is how many, this is how far a dollar goes in the investment I'm making in a building. If like massively increasing wages, you've got a very competitive labor market, you have these beautiful buildings, at least, particularly in tech, and it was all about how do we recruit folks quickly. And that has fundamentally shifted. And the next 24 months, I think, are going to be a very interesting test of how many workplace teams shift to, here's the return on investment that we're getting from our buildings. It's, it's the second most expensive thing next to payroll. And um, without having clear metrics on that and some financial literacy, I, I, I think um, we'll see some of those teams uh, evaporate. So that's a great segue into kind of the last component of this panel, which is about how all of these trends around the changing landscape of work are affecting cities themselves. So can we connect the dots here a little bit to take it out you know, to the broadest level and just talk about how are we starting to see cities adapt to these changing work patterns and what are some of the lessons we've learned so far? Sure, I'll start with that. That's actually what I focus on on a daily basis in the last three years is just, you know, what's been going on in cities since the pandemic. Um, so work, the nature of work has changed, right? And, and as I mentioned before, like, it's changing rapidly, right? First, we were like going to the office to um, collaborate and now we're going to the office to focus on work because we want that you know high-speed internet etc um, but now what we're also seeing is that we're seeing a, a trend for partial days right so it's like you're going to the office but you're not spending the entire day at the office you might actually you know go somewhere else to work partially and so it's not just home, it's not just work, it's, you know, it's these third places, right? Whether it's a cafe or a public park or a library or at, you know, your clients onsite, um, you know, building there. So it's recognizing that work, workplace rather, is just a part of an ecosystem. Right. It's the office is not just the workplace anymore, because now workplace involves an entire ecosystem of places that are all around the city. What we've seen, you know, what in, in the research that I've been doing on cities, the it's those commercial districts that are like mono use. Right. Um, those were the least resilient. And it's those mixed use downtowns, the mixed-use commercial cores that are actually thriving. And so there has been a trend now to make sure that all these commercial cores are becoming more and more mixed-use. And in fact, in the research that I've been doing, it's the people who feel that their downtowns are a great place to live. They're they're highly, much more likely to also say that their downtowns or business districts are a 
provide a great experience. And that is actually, it's, it gives us a very large signal that if you want a great downtown, if you want a great business district, you make it livable, right? And so we have the data points behind that. So there's this trend for, for more, you know, mixed use. And rather than thinking of it as a central business district, we're likely to see things more like a central lifestyle district, a central cultural district, um, and away from just business because work is not going to be that primary reason that brings you to downtown. I think that cities are uh, extremely resilient. Um, when the pandemic happened, I remember sort of a flight out of major cities and there were all these headlines, you know, New York City is dead and San Francisco has been dead for a while and now it's definitely dead. I live in San Francisco and they make a lot of fun of us. Um, um, and like, that's just not true. Like people came back en masse. And so I think cities are resilient. I think sectors are not. So crypto is a great example. Um, and I'm, I, I, I don't mean this is dour, but I'm, generally concerned about commercial real estate as a sector over the next 24 months. I mean, we are going to see a massive number of leases start to roll off balance sheets in two years. And when that happens, it's going to get kicked to a landlord who took out leverage from a major bank or perhaps a regional bank. And if they can't make a premium dollar on that space that I think Sophia is absolutely right. A flight to quality, but less of it. Uh, and and the area under the curve is what's going to get um, a lot of scrutiny. And if that happens, it's entirely possible banks start owning buildings en masse, like in a very large scale. And I do not know what happens next when a bunch of landlords default on their loans at the type of scale that we're talking about. And just so that folks know, I know these, these two are experts in space much more than I am, um, but there's 10.9 billion square feet of office space in the US. It, commercial real estate generally is, is, is uh, uh, 70 billion square feet. I mean, we are talking about a massive, massive amount of space and it's, it, it's not used that much. So the bill's gonna come due and how we deal with that I think is a, is a very important question. I don't have an answer, <laughs> just to be clear. Sophia might. Yeah. <laughs> so is part of the answer possibly this, this really diving into mixed use, right? And, and how, can we, can we look at any city um, that you've looked into or, or maybe somebody lives in that seems to be approaching some of these downtrends in the right way to prepare for, you know, what happens as all this shakes out? So I can name a couple of projects, but, you know, for example, in Boston, um, there's there was an area um, that was actually going through a period of blight, and um, we we had this mixed use development um, that opened recently that identified this neighborhood as a food desert, as a transit desert, um, 
you know, it wasn't very walkable. And the mixed use provided, you know, entertainment. It provided the largest supermarket in Boston now. Um, it provided, you know, fantastic um, transit connections. And it, it became a place where people liked to hang around and um, just walk around, discover, et cetera. When you, when you walk, and so it's a very successful project, right? And what was great was that it also, you know, they worked very closely with the community um, and all these community neighborhood organizations so that it was very, there was community buy-in, right? So a highly successful project. When you walk around Austin, um, like, like right in the middle, uh, immediate vicinity, you know, you're walking by like walls, you're walking by windows that aren't transparent. Um, so next time you're walking around, when you go outside, just notice like where you're walking and you're, you're going to notice that you're walking very fast to get to your destination because what you're walking by right now isn't that pleasant, right? Um, but if you go to like South Austin, which I was yesterday, um, and I was all along Congress Avenue, and you have all these stores, you have like little little alleys where they're selling gelato, and you have um, people just sitting outside. That's when you notice that you're you're walking, you're slowing down, right? You're slowing down, you're peeking in, and you're just kind of hanging out and you're like, wow, this is great, right? And that's a great experience. Like that's when you know, like when you know that, when you realize you're slowing down because you want to check things out, like that's a great city experience. And right now, you know, Austin has a mix of it, I, I have to say, but you know, certain districts, are, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement, but there, that's, that's what we are looking for. I think it'll be interesting to see. I think one of the biggest challenges that cities have right now are the zoning regulations and how incredibly slow they are to change. And we talk a lot about, you know, in my world that the pandemic finally gave us an opportunity to change things up like we never have before because real estate buildings like it's a very it's like a dinosaur, right? It's a very slow beast to move. And a lot of us kind of took the bull by the horns and said, all right, this is our chance. We're going to just completely throw this on its head and just see what happens. And it was the perfect opportunity. And it still is that I hope we don't walk away from too fast to try things out that we never would have been able to try before. And city governments need to get on this ASAP because taking the opportunity to try something new that we maybe never had thought of before this is that chance, right? And we will never know if we don't try now. So I'm very much a proponent for, you know, pushing the boundaries as far as we can on these experiments and trying things because it's really hard to kind of inch your way there. Just go for it, change it, change an area to this, uh, what was the word that you used? The, the not, not CBDs, but... Yeah, create these new central districts, right, in cities and really try it out and create these uh, these experiments and see what happens. Uh, and then, you know, because it's, if it's not working now, there's nothing wrong in trying. It might cost some money, but in the long run, you know, we'll definitely learn from it. 
I mean, like a, 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 I think a very good example of what you're talking about, what you both are talking about is um, the amount of dollars that um, folks will spend um, prior to personal electric vehicles was usually concentrated within, if you lived in a city, it was usually concentrated to, to where you could walk. Like, wh what could you, on a weekend. But having access to an electric bike, whether it's a family bike or it's something that you rent, has increased the distance, not quite as far as you might go with a car. And all of a sudden, these local businesses are benefiting from increased comp increased revenues that they wouldn't have otherwise seen, um, which makes the city feel much more alive. If you have been to San Francisco, uh, uh, to maybe harp on that for a second, the downtown area, to a lot of folks, people show up, they go down Market Street, they record a video on TikTok, and they say San Francisco's dead. You know, and it's a it's a it's a haven of debauchery and waste and theft. Um, if you go, it's seven miles by seven miles. This is a small city. If you go just a little bit further in, and you go towards like the Panhandle or Golden Gate, I was um, riding through Golden Gate, which is an enormous. It's bigger than Central Park. It's an enormous um, park. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Some are like dancing and others are singing and then there's a there's a giant Ferris wheel and like it is alive in a way that feels very special. But if you go to downtown San Francisco, you wouldn't know it. And so and this is actually the difference between the small town feel that I think you're describing that can exist in large cities like Austin by by slowing people down and investing in neighborhood design. Um, and uh, big cities that have invested in a ton of physical buildings without nearly as much need as we've had before because we can do distributed work. So it's going to get weird, and I think that's a really good thing. Isn't that a, an Austin thing? <laughs> yeah. Austin weird, right? Yeah, totally. Come on, Austin, do it. Yeah. Actually, that happened in New York City, too, where the like midtown Manhattan emptied out, right? You might remember... Um, but then, like, your residential neighborhoods became very vibrant, right? Because all everyone's was everyone started supporting their local mom-and-pop shops, right? Their local. And I know for me, you know, I used to have my dentist, my doctor, my hair salon. They were all near my office. And during the pandemic, I switched everything over to being in walking distance of my apartment. And, and that's actually what we're seeing in the research that – People, what we saw most recently, you know, we released this urban mobility report. And what we saw was that there was a decrease in the use of public transit, right? We all heard about that. Um, but there was this increase in use for micromobility, right? Like scooters, bikes, e-bikes, et cetera. And what we also found was that people did not want to travel as far for the things in their daily lives, like much like I told you about my own experience. And they wanted to live closer to things, even to work. And what we also found was that the people who were hybrid workers, they were much more likely to say that they wanted to live closer to work than the people who were commuting on a daily basis, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but it's sort of this it's sort of this trend now to move towards like a 15 minute neighborhood right where 
We just want to be closer to the things in our lives. We don't want to commute as much because um, we still like value that time that we got back, you know, working from home. Um, and we, you know, we're definitely, um, we're still relying on the car, but it's, it's less about tra public transit and much more about micromobility. So this seems like a good time before we, um, you know, get to the end of the panel. If there's any questions, otherwise we can, we've learned that the four of us can talk for quite a long time. So yeah, sure, I think you should just come up to the mic if you have a question. It's right there in the middle. Thanks, this has been awesome. I also live in San Francisco, so I identify real hard with a lot of what you're saying. Um, but um, I was curious, yet I was uh, expecting somebody to mention, maybe I missed it, uh, like like the WeWorks of the world and, and how those have been affected if they're like gaining popularity because regular offices are dropping or, or what's going yeah, on? Yeah, WeWork was right. It was just run weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's let's um, talk about other <laughs> versions of that, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, I think WeWork was absolutely right. Um, I don't know if their ratios on number of square feet per person, you know, and pack everybody into 50 square feet or whatever their goals were is ideal, but this concept of an all-access pass, I think they call it, where you can be in any city and you can step into an office when you need it, I think is absolutely correct and very much the future. Um, I don't know of the really viable competitors to WeWork. I know that there's Regis and some others, but yeah, it's a it's an excellent model. Yeah, I'm I'm very deep in this world right now, and uh, it's interesting because there's been a huge uptick in in you know the primarily SaaS companies that are now offering these uh, you know the ability for employees anywhere in the world to access any co-working space anywhere whether it be WeWork or a boutique or something else and uh, those have been hugely valuable especially as the the distributed workforce has gotten stronger being able to offer employees that option is is pretty huge so I do think that, that that new program is, we're just seeing the beginning of it, um, and WeWork jumped on it pretty quick. Uh, and because of the number of spaces they have, I, I, I always joke that WeWork is like Kleenex, right? Like we always call Kleenex, their tissue Kleenex, and we call co-working spaces WeWork. <laughs> so I think that, you know, they got on it pretty quickly and pretty early, which was really smart. Uh, but there's more and more good quality spaces that are starting to come um, in part of these programs as well. But I think that, that those types of spaces are hugely valuable for companies like ours because the ability to have dedicated or non-dedicated space for unlimited requirement and investment. I think it's called a, a cognitive referent where like you have this like associate association with like a specific brand. Yeah, totally. It's like we work as co-working. <laughs> Any follow-ups or do you want to move on to the next person? Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Hi guys, um, thanks for today. I'm coming from Australia. I work at the one of the federal departments there, leading a change program called New Ways of Working, which is essentially how do we shift to these sorts of models of working. The pandemic really accelerated it, but we kind of kicked it off in 2019. Um, one of the things that we've really witnessed is, you know, lots of ghost towns on floors of our offices. So we've shrunk the amount of space that we have, 
redesigned it very much around activity-based working, so more collaborative areas and and freedom for people to choose to sit where they like um, in loose kind of neighbourhoods based on the type of uh, business team that they're in. Um, we, we do get quite a bit of pushback from that uh, across the organisation. Um, broadly, staff are really keen to do a 50-50 split throughout all of our staff surveys. It's coming out really clear of half the time at home, half the time at work. So this is kind of the trade-off for us as an organisation in terms of funding of what we can do. Um, but my question is probably around, you know, what's the right, is there a right ratio of you know, how much space should you be providing versus how much can you restrict? So we've been, we started out with um, a seven to 10 model of, so 10 desks for, sorry, yeah, 10, seven, now I'm getting my ratios confused. Um, seven desks for 10 people, that's what I'm gonna say. Seven desks for 10 people, we've gone down to like six desks for 10 people because we were looking at occupancy. But we do deal a lot with kind of feedback from staff saying, you know, it felt too busy on these days um, or it feels too quiet and we, we're trying to kind of maximise the space. So I was just after any thoughts or advice you have on, you know, what are you seeing with those trends around how the spaces are being used and where we could go? Thank you. Go ahead. So <laughs> we talk, I talk about this a lot with my colleagues across the industry about the, the question of ratios because everything, I mean, we used to do everything by ratios, right? It was kind of our gold standard of figuring out space requirements. Everything is out the window. Like there's no answer anymore. And the thing that, that I constantly go back to is one, when you have an environment like that, making sure that you're eliminating the unknown as much as possible. Back in the day when um, and this was like, I think in the fifties when the first kind of hot desking type of space was introduced, the thing that kept people away from it was because of the unknown of coming in and, and worrying that they might not have a desk for the day or knowing where, what kind of amenities would be at their desk or how, where they would sit. So making sure that you have a way for people to book their desk in advance when you have those types of spaces and really understand like, okay, so I'm booking a desk that has the amenities that I need and I know my desk is going to be there for me the, when I get in. So just you're eliminating that like cognitive load of the worry. And um, the other part of it is also making sure that your spaces are designed with as much flexibility as possible. Fortunately, we're now in a world where mobile battery power is way more advanced than it ever has been before. And we're actually designing spaces in our offices that don't have access to plugs at all. And we're providing just mobile power and desks that are on wheels, desks that can move, even you know tablet armchairs, all different types of options and ways for people to work so that your space can evolve constantly with you. One thing that I always am saying is that you know, we're getting rid of when we're done with spaces and, and done with construction projects, no more ribbon cutting. The space is never done anymore. So actually going in mind with, you know, our space, we're dog fooding it just like we dog food our products. And talking about it constantly in the company is getting people excited to be part of the experiment and also helping them understand that there's always going to be blue tape everywhere, right? Because the punch list is never done. And the space, we're always looking for feedback so that, yes, you know, 
the way that we think people are working today will not be the way that they're working tomorrow. And so just making sure that we're prepared for that now and that we're constantly evolving it to help support their needs and the way that people, that people are changing the way they work, because it's going to be different for every team also. I completely agree with that. Um, I think, um, I think right now, especially because capital is such a premium right now, you can't afford to do like a whole redesign and risk th that it's going to be completely unsuccessful, right? And so one of the, you know, uh, what we're saying with our clients um, that, are, that are having successful results is to do these incremental changes, right? But to ask your employees, you know, have them test it out, have them use it, and get feedback because in terms of ratios or any prescription, like it's going to, it really is going to vary. It'll vary by industry. It'll vary by the company, you know, or even your, your company culture, or like you said, the company team. Right. And so it, it'll vary. So I think what would benefit for you is like to, to understand like your employees and, sort of develop a baseline uh, benchmark, right? And then from there, start implementing, you know, incremental changes and start testing it out, much like a tech company would with like A-B testing. Um, but that, that I think would be, a, you know, that would be my recommendation for you. How, how big is your company? Uh, about 4,000 people, so not, not huge. But. All in the same location? No, so it's uh, dispersed across Australia, but predominantly in Canberra, where the government is. Um, and then we have uh, lots of other sites. So we've kind of redone the Perth office already. Like we've, we've, we've done, we're kind of about a third of the way through the redesign process, I guess, and, and kind of, you know, construction, et cetera. So we're getting iterative feedback the whole way along, but it's very hard being on the people side of things, wanting to make change and then finding that, you know, the construction's too far along. Like we've dealt with that. Sorry, that wasn't your question. Yeah, and maybe something changes 18 months from now when everything gets available. Uh, I, I'll, I promise to keep my response short. Um, I think, um, you know how unreliable fish stories are or um, eyewitnesses? I think that's what it's like to get, we don't have enough conference rooms yeah. or I need more desks. Yeah. And it's not that people are lying it's that they have an experience once and then they sort of apply that to sort of the generalized concept of the experience to work in the office and the number of times that employees are literally on the other end of right um from their experience on like what the data actually says on use and how many rooms are available or what amenities are available is, I mean, it's like nine times out of 10. It's like a highly unreliable to rely on a survey to make all decisions. Yep. So I would say having a really talented team that can interpret what surveys are trying to say and perhaps even give people folk, like give folks the opposite of what they're asking, but at the very least you have some data to like say, what do people think is their experience. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is um, like never being done, I, I could not agree with more. Um, th there's a, 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 a very uh, false assumption that buildings get built once and then they can be used. And, and this is actually something that architects generally have struggled with for years um, since the dawn of architecture, which is, you know, I, I, I design a building, I make a whole bunch of assumptions and um, essentially 
the world's buildings were built on an architect's best guess. And um, that's terrifying because we're talking about like a $280 trillion asset that we just kind of like, well, I think that'll work. And so I would say just like, don't be done, keep iterating and invest in the stuff that's flexible. Thank you. Yep. Hi everyone, thank you for the panel. Um, I'm here from Ireland, the complete opposite end of the globe to the last speaker. Um, so just, if you don't mind, two really quick questions. And it's perfectly fine to say we don't have data on this because it's kind of digging into data a little bit. I'd be really interested to understand if you look at the commercial implications of any of the recommendations you're making. Um, Reach Capital, a venture capitalist in San Francisco, recently did a survey of their portfolio companies who did um, basically everything from totally in office right through the gambit to totally uh, remote. And they found that culture actually didn't, wasn't impacted much by that change because people were quite deliberate about how they built their cultures. But they found that the companies that were entirely in person, their revenue was growing three and a half times faster than those that were remote. And I'm wondering if you have seen anything like that or is that data that you dig into? Okay, well, so I will tell you about one of the findings from our most recent workplace uh, report is that the people, um, people were saying that they need to, in, we asked the question, like, what, how many days do you need to be in the office to be productive, right? And these, on average, it was, they needed to be in the office one more day than they were actually coming in, right? And so we looked at, like, what were the reasons why people weren't coming in for the, the days that they need to be in that office? Um, and... It was really, the, um, the respondents were saying that they didn't have the right, um, it wasn't providing the right uh, experiences for all their different work modes, right? So the the companies that we're, we're seeing that do th the best are the companies that provide experiences or provide those um, effective workspaces for all the different work modes. Um, including, you know, working in, you know, working alone, working in person, and working virtually. Um, but it, but we're also seeing that the the companies that do have that workplace effectiveness, also, they lead to greater work um, company outcomes, like you were saying, um, with profitability, you know, uh, employee retention, et cetera. How big is the portfolio or fund? You see, that's why I'm looking for more data. It's only 37 companies. I, I think like the sample size is small enough that I would probably be dubious of like any immediate conclusions. And you know how I feel about surveys anyway. Um, but I, I think, I think there are going to. I think there's some, and I say this as a company that is distributed. We we, we have a we have a mixed model in person and distributed. I think there is wishful thinking on distributed work. And I think that it is gonna bear out in the performance of companies that come back in person and companies that compete but are fully distributed. And I think it has most to do with the retention of top talent 
than anything else because in-person results in trust. I mean, the, the value of in-person is almost directly tied to, do I trust this other person? You are less likely to say shit things about somebody when you're in-person. You're much more likely to not drop anonymous commentary. You're much more likely to try to create space for somebody else to say something. And that all those things contribute to trust, which then results in better communication, like constructive conflict, which then results in, so there's a great book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. If you haven't read it, strongly recommend. Um, it's a fiction, it's like a fable, but it's really good. And essentially like it, the no, number one thing is trust. There it is, there's the book, nice. <laughs> wow, that's awesome, that worked out. Name I did a few plant more books. him. <laughs> Okay, nice, just send me the QR code. I think that um, like trust is fundamental to being in person. And I think that um, I think when you have a high trust team, you're much more likely to work on the fundamental problem, which is much more likely to produce better results. Yeah. That said, um, you are not gonna be able to attract some talent. And that's inher inherent in that is the question. Like the talent that, is the talent so good that you can't attract that want distributed work? Are they the difference makers yeah. for a company that's fully distributed? And I, I think that teams tend to be greater than the individuals that make them up. Uh, and so it's much more likely that I, you know, as a distributed company, I'd say that being in person is probably gonna result in better outcomes. The other really quick question was, um, we talked throughout this about the office, um, and I'm wondering if you've seen anyone who's dropped the office and moved to office north, office south, office east, west. Um, to Because, look, remote working, the thing we most hate about going into the office is the commute to the office. So if we can reduce that or eliminate that as much as possible, um, I wonder, have you looked at that or any pros and cons that have happened to companies who have done that, or maybe you just haven't seen that? I mean, there's definitely people getting rid of their offices, if that's your question. But are they creating new ones locally to where people live? Sure. Yeah, and smaller ones. Um, I mean, I watched a- change in the dynamic? Sorry? Has that changed the dynamic of how they work? Everything is changing the dynamic of how they work. Like, as soon as you change the space, there is no circumstance in which you modify uh, like making like space is not constant, nor is human behavior. And so, whether it's we were supplementing with WeWorks or it's uh, opening up regional offices or hibernating space or turn—I mean, I watched a large corporate, it's like a top twenty-five company, turn off thirty percent of its portfolio, and they sold what they could. They hibernated the rest. They're going to let it like let the leases roll off. And, um, and then they simultaneously invested in WeWorks and other sort of regional spaces. So yeah, it's happening. And I think it's gonna happen quite a bit more. Thank you. I can adjust that. Hi, um, really great panel. Uh, I'm from DC working with JLL, who have kind of interesting position in like the DC office space because so much of it is government held. But we have a large percentage of our portfolio as class A buildings and they're obviously a huge focus point right now is like you said, they're highly amenitized. They're the most successful category of building that we're seeing people want to come back to. But a still a large portion of our portfolio is class B and C, and we're running into 
times where we want to improve, we want to innovate, but we have landlords who either don't have the money or are still thinking, how can we just go back to the way things were? And I was wondering if you had any examples of Class B and C buildings that were still innovating in budget um, in creative ways where, like, you know, there's a lot of columns, the floor plates not really open at all, and how people overcame that, or how the landlords and the leasing teams would overcome that to make a B and C building more desirable to work at. Okay, I guess that's for me. <laughs> um, so with with the the Class B and C buildings that we're seeing, um, the a lot some some of these. Um, some of these developers, what they're doing is transforming the ground plane, as I said, to re-engage the community and re-engage the city and bring draw people in. So that's one way. The other way, like I said, uh, you know, with our clients that are having the most success, is doing those incremental changing changes um, because you know because capital is such is is that such a premium and landlords don't have the budget um, and so it's really those that that iteration of incremental changes and and like you said like never ending but it's it's that process that I think people are um, adopting right now that we're seeing thank you um, hi uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights I feel like um, what's happening right now um, with regards to post-pandemic shift is like sort of the Wild West in some ways, like, um, you know, fully distributed but partial surveillance state to like uh, moving into WeWorks where you have these like um, executive operator collectives that then bring people in as guests when, when, when they want to see their team to focus on a problem or something. What I was really interested in, in asking more about was um, you mentioned rolling desks and I was, and, and it made me think about like highly configurable um, works, dynamic like workspaces. And I was wondering what other types of um, physical objects like, or, or, or features um, would you guys incorporate or, 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 or do you guys uh, admire? We've definitely spent a lot of time on this. Great question. Um, I think that having very, very intentional space is really important with these new, the new way people are working. So something that we did in one of our new, newer office builds was have a very specific quiet space where it allowed, it wasn't just a library space. It, there was a library space that was the like ultra quiet space. But then there's the lighter quiet space, which is more for focus heads down work. And that has helped a lot because people are relearning how to be in person again. And, and if you're on the phone all the time, we were just talking about this in the green room, if you're on the phone all the time, um, recognizing the people that are around you and, and if they're doing focus work, if your phone call is disturbing them. So having very intentional spaces is super important, which isn't necessarily like a, an item, but it's... Uh, kind of a thought process but also we went all in on phone booths 
phone booths are hugely important and a really big a big thing for us in our offices. One of the basic, b- biggest experiments that we did at Cloudflare when we were re-envisioning our spaces was we looked at what is working really, really well for us over the pandemic when we weren't together in person. And the level playing field that was created across the globe with teams who were no longer in a conference room on a wall that no one's looking at on the screen. You have no idea what their nonverbal cues are saying. You don't know when they want to talk. It's very hard to break into the conversation. Now we're all in the same size, you know, uh, Brady Bunch Square looking face on at each other. And you're able to really have, you know, like I said, a level playing field of of how people are interacting. So we went ahead and we removed VC from every single conference room. And we said, when we're coming back in person, there is no more of that experience of inequity of the person who's not in the room. If you're having a meeting in person or if, if anyone is in person and one person is not, everyone goes into the phone booth. That is a pretty big statement to make. Uh, and we're actively learning from it. Does it work? Do we need to find, you know, different versions of this experiment? We're kind of at that stage now that we're exploring that, but making sure that we're maintaining what worked for us really well in this. And so those phone booths are a critical point to the success of being able to do that and still go in person. Don't you miss the giant, like the one giant head on the screen? I feel like... Kind of nostalgic. It, it kind of is. We'll put your picture up in our. In kind of our... like looking down at you, you know. <laughs> We've also seen, you know, this push towards um, this focus on wellness, right? Especially after pan after the pandemic, um, there's been a focus on amenities that really focus on health and wellness and it could be something simple as like open staircases that encourage floors or you know having indoor outdoor spaces um, and having that flexibility for people to just get fresh air um, it's it's things like those that 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 we're seeing um, high success with do you know valve the company valve they're like uh, they make steam and um, half-life um, for many years, they had, um, and I think still do, desks on wheels, and teams would self-assemble. It's a very weird culture. There were no, there are no managers. There's just a bunch of folks in a room who decide to like self-assemble or not. It made deadlines very hard, but they would essentially like only assemble around the projects that made sense. Um, I think that's at one end of the extreme. Uh, I, I don't think that's possible for most organizations. But the, the, the one that I've seen that I love the most is um, battery packs that power laptops, not just phones. It's a very small thing, but being able to have access to power without needing an outlet provides a level of flexibility that um, going from Wi-Fi, going from hardline internet to Wi-Fi then enables. And, and um, obviously we all have mobile devices as a result of Wi-Fi so, uh, or wireless connectivity. So. Small things can go a long way. I'm, I'm definitely feeling that last one right now with the power. Right, yeah. Mine's <laughs> at like 36% or something. Yeah. Um, just as a follow-up question, um, you guys talked about the quiet side, but what about the loud side? Like, do you guys, have you put any spaces with music in that, like, is collective and a shared experience and some people might focus better there? Yeah, totally. You have to have the vibe, right? Like, people want to 
I, I'm the type of person that I, I call myself a floater. I float around all day long. I am, if I'm in the office, I'm kind of like a little butterfly going around the space. And so sometimes I might want to like hang out where the vibe is and the music and, and hear like what's on our company playlist versus an area that like people are really chatting loudly and stuff. So having, it's about flexibility and choice, like I said earlier, right? Having those types of spaces indicated so that, you know, these are the cultural norms in these areas. And so whenever you're feeling it, I mean, we there's a ton of research, research that shows that the different types of spaces activate different parts of your brain, right? So if you're trying to, if you're stuck, um, just moving to a different type of area can unstick you when you're trying to get through a mental block. So just making sure that you're having all those types of spaces available is really important. Thank you. I think we'll just take one more question and then we'll probably have to wrap it up. But thank you so much, everyone, for the great questions. Hi, thanks for the panel and thanks for taking my question. I'm just curious um, if and how you see art contributing to spaces, whether it's with companies in their space, even though they're perhaps, um, you know, taking up smaller spaces, but still wanting to create these experiences that draw people in. And in terms of real estate development, the same thing where we're trying to create these cultural centers that give people those unique kinds of experiences, but at the same time, the budget for art. So I'm just curious what your position is on that and how you advise your clients to maybe encourage them to consider art in that big picture and how it can lead to the experiences that we're talking about. Oh my gosh, if I could jump up right now, like on this stage, I would scream at the top of my lungs about the importance of this. It is so, so, so important. Not only does it, you know, we often say, you know, when you walk into a Cloudflare office, the idea is that you know that you're in a Cloudflare office, but you need to know that you're in a Cloudflare office in Austin or in Lisbon. And the artwork is is such an important way to tell the story of what we do because what we do as a company is pretty hard for a lot of people to understand. So to be able to tell our story in a way that you can like see something like a piece of art and say, okay, I understand the story now, but also... I'm, you know, this is Cloudflare in Austin and it speaks to that. So finding ways to do that, no matter the size of the space, is hugely, hugely important. We've also started um, implementing interactive pieces as well in our spaces. And I'm not saying like digitally interactive, but actually something that you can walk in and touch and feel. Our, our One of our taglines is helping build a better internet. And we just installed this huge Lego wall in our office that we spelled out that in Legos. And then employees or visitors can come and leave their mark and, and build something onto that page with Legos as well, or the, the wall. Um, also, you know, something where it's a social media moment where you can take a picture and say, here I was, I was here, and just leave your mark. Um, being able to to tell that story and have a fun experience through the art is so, so, so important. So 100 million percent, yes. Yeah, I, I agree. When you create that experience, um, an experience that you can't find elsewhere, you know, Work is going to get you to the office, right? But it's it's creating that design and that experience that's going to get people to, to come and it's going to get people to stay. Um, so I 100% I agree that art should be part of that experience and it creates that unique experience. 
And in terms of if you're on a budget, you know, um, I heard a great talk recently. Um, it was with R Rochelle Reed from the city of Detroit, right? And basically using art and culture to rebuild the city of Detroit and create a sense of community, create an exceptional experience in the city. And I think right now Detroit is the, the number four ranked city um, for mural art. Right. And, and, you know, it's not famous artists, right. But it's, you know, all these artists in residence and these artists can apply to, to, um, they can submit a proposal to get, you know, uh, to do a mural across the city. So it's, you know, you can take advantage of, you know, um, artists who are, are trying to make a name for themselves right now. It also bears out in the data. Um, uh, window seats we see get used way more than stuff that's uh, closer to the interior of a building. Uh, biophilia or like plant life inside of an office has a huge impact on the experience of a space. Um, and so uh, art falls very much in that category. I'm the soulless technologist on the, but completely agree on the data side. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, uh, again, for the wonderful questions. Um, clearly, this is you know, still a, a great experiment happening in real time, how the world of work um, recovers from the pandemic years. But you know, just a couple of takeaways from the panel. I would say I, I think we sort of unearthed that um, choice is the office perk of the moment. Uh, it's about to get weird in commercial real estate. And cities need to um, diversify what draws people downtown beyond coming to work. So we'll see how it all plays out. And thanks especially to our panelists for all this great insight helping us sort through these trends. Thank you. Thank you.